Poetry. Poetry. Do you like featured performers? Uh, I'm really excited about Jeff. Um, really, Jeffrey, I'm really excited about you being here. Uh, Jeffrey gave me his book about a year ago, I guess. Uh, and at the time, I read it to cover to cover, and I really enjoyed it. Um, he did bring copies of it tonight. Um, I'm really happy to have you here, Jeffrey. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome Jeffrey Morgan to our stage? The humbling short man at the microphone moment. Bear with, bear with me. Thank you. Appreciate that. Oh no, no, it's got to go the other way. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Thank you very much. Can you hear me? Good. So, I got papal butter in my brain. A little higher. I'm sorry. But I appreciate it. That's good. Yeah. How how's that? Can you hear me now? Great, great. So I gotta follow Claude McKay and Sterling A. Brown, huh? Awesome, awesome. That's good for me. Claude McKay, they found a new novel. Did you hear this? I know. That's not for long. One would hope. Um, thanks very much, Robert Houston, and thanks very much, Poetry Night, for having me. Uh, it's really nice to be here. Um. Uh, relatively new to Bellingham. I've lived here about a year. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, been living in, in Brooklyn, New York, New York City for about seven, eight years, and it's nice to be in more than 500 square feet on a regular basis. <laughs> so I followed the assignment, and these are some poems that are not in my voice, persona poems, dramatic monologues, what have you. This poem is called The Bourbon Drinker's Guide to Intimacy. I prefer the contrast of drinking very slowly from a shot glass. Each sip is immeasurably small, so afterwards my need is stronger and more invisible. However you choose to partake, each dead drink is the husk of a ghost, and also a little empty diving bell representing the person and the ocean. It should take a long time longer than your life, and you should not walk or speak a lot, as these are the two things that can most betray you. If you're sitting in a bar, think of the weight of a dart disappearing in the air, death throes of the jukebox mistaken for music. If you're at home, make sure every light is on to muffle the sound of pouring, which invokes distance and gravity. At home, you're responsible and in the dark, it's easy to confuse the smell lingering in the ditch with the dead coming back to life. This is called The Lifeguard. Every job a person does necessarily destroys him in small, important ways. 
The shoreline is the hem of a dress destroying me, taken up and let out in a kind of modesty I don't understand. Nothing is truly buried in or built from sand. That destroys me. I look down the beach at little dots of color orbiting a vanishing point. I think of myself as a pocket of gravity in space presumed to be weightless. I think of my body doing what the moon does, taking and repurposing light. I think of the public, how there is no such thing, how I am a part of it, and the texture of pleasure conflated with risk. When I lie down at night to sleep, I find myself still breathing the half-breath, half-kiss of rescue. Um, you, uh, I'm not going to say that. Uh, this poem is called The Former Player Provides Commentary. It's easy to leave it all on the field because the field grows relentlessly. I feel like an amnesiac holding a photograph. We talk about these men as if they're children, these children as if they're explosions. But when you're playing, you don't think of it that way, as a child loves to be chased by her father, moon obscured by clouds, man and then monster, a process of exhaustion. These feelings come to you later, looking down at your life, which can be so easily covered by a piece of paper. Your body was a door you slammed and slammed. And then there are all those guys who never make it, filling the stadium with resentment as a form of worship. They are luckier than you, and they know it, holding tickets and diet sodas, lying to their children about teamwork, living and reliving memories of a life that never happened. <clears throat> the Mayor's Guide to Re-Election. Notice how reflections stutter along a bank of windows into and out of the spaces between them like a choppy reel of film. It is your job to imagine how a man changes, how he becomes his doppelgangers. To be local is to have a distance an infinite number of times. In the sunlight of early autumn and among long shadows of old buildings reminiscent of deadfalls, you can hear several versions of a myth about perseverance. Every time you forget someone's name, a child falls at a field. No one can teach you how to move towards another, to embrace before leaving, or how to get so close without touching. No one remembers who found the first child in a field and carried her home. So this is where the persona starts to blur into the real. Um, I, I suffer, as my father and his father before him, from situational insomnia, the situation being life. Um, I, I'm not always suffer from insomnia, but I, I go through bouts from time to time. Um, and there are different kinds of insomnia. Some of it can be very productive insomnia where I'm happy to have it come and I'm just up all night and sort of productive in ways I want to be productive. And then there's unproductive insomnia where I might as well be asleep, 
because I'm awake, but I'm just kind of comatose. And that's awful. But when it's not awful, sometimes it produces things like this. The Insomniac's Guide to Reciprocity. Strike a match to hear the hole it tears in the night, your very own tiny parenthesis. Let that drip of heat fall towards your fingers until you remember how soft nothing can be. Strike another. This is the law of diminishing returns. This is why fire is not the opposite of emptiness and why you are not growing younger, no matter how many times you say, sign your name like this. The air that is all around you is also on the opposite side of the world. You dig down with the same mind you have always had, knowing only more, and with something less and less like surprise each time the burn follows you into the dark. The Insomniac's Guide to Oblivion. These are happy poems. These are happy, happy. The Insomniac's Guide to Oblivion. Maybe the space between memories is excessively beautiful, like the space between people you love, who will never move any closer to each other. Let's call this the universe and say it fills the room at night. You see things that are not there next to things that are. This is how we feel about the dead in old pictures, where their clothes are all wrong. We wonder, how long until we are born? Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. The Insomniac's Guide to Phenomenology. We have all been taken by a light we cannot understand. Sometimes when you stare too long, it appears in the sky behind your eyelids. It is as if the soul were pulling its arms out of your arms like long gloves. It is as if your shadow were on the ground to remind you of falling in dreams. What do you hope to extinguish when you lie down? My family has sleep problems. My, my mother is a sleepwalker, although not super recently. I've never sleptwalked that I know of. My brother was a sleepwalker until he was, you know, 10 or 11, and then he stopped. But, you know, do sleepwalkers ever stop, or are they just, you know, waiting for their moment? <laughs> no, you know, that's interesting. I, I don't think he not, – not the way I get it, not the kind of hardcore, you know, meth impersonation – which is not what's going on at all, I promise. The sleepwalker's son. Night grows over the house, and I sweat the sugar of false memory. I think I see my mother out of the corner of my eye and turn to find wind in the blinds, just as she would be. The edge is fat and goes on forever. She walks heel to toe, arms still as blades in a mill the trees have taken back. No one remembers what we make. No one remembers except to love the smooth surface of finished things, like skin when we were younger. Even in dreams, she wonders why there is nothing in the room, not even me, for the fingers of a cool breeze to disassemble.
Thank you, thank you. Um, I think the doctors who have the toughest job in the hospital are the anesthesiologists. That's what I think. The anesthesiologist. My eyes find rest, dust in a column of sunlight, the shape of my lover under the sheets like hills behind clouds. I only know I'm staring when my lashes touch together as if magnetized. I'm not looking at anything. A voice inside me counts backwards. The zero is a mouth with a prayer stuck in it. No one is going anywhere and no one is coming back. My hands curl like dead spiders, curl like those of the ferryman around an invisible oar. Sometimes there is nothing to do as distance asserts itself, but notice how the banks don't hold the river, how the boat is too small and crumbles when you press the button that summons the medicine. Uh, so I have a daughter who's three and a holy terror, uh, and I am the primary caregiver. And I never thought of myself as the kind of poet who writes poems about his kids, but here it is. <laughs> How you got your name. At night, we watched old movies, listening for names to name our child. Later at night, we discussed color, how it ruined movies with promises, and we wondered why it didn't ruin children. Maybe it did. So that is the story of how you got your name. It has everything a story needs, including conflict. We didn't have any money, meaning we didn't have enough. The old movies kept arriving, and the same people kept appearing in them with new names and problems that were new and new almost kissing. The kissing in movies has never been right. Today, of course, a movie can begin with ridiculous kissing under a sky that is several kinds of blue. But that is not where your name comes from. Uh, I grew up in Alaska, in Fairbanks, Alaska, and I have decided that I should stop not writing about that and start writing about that. Um, it's kind of a place you carry around with you. Got some Alaskans in the house. You know, there's an Alaskan mafia in Bellingham. Are you aware of this? I shouldn't have said that. I didn't say that. We are all around you. This poem is called The Grizzly. In custom glass, implying appetite, the grizzly in the restaurant is almost eight feet tall on hind legs, hugging nothing. This is not an interior bear. It is perfect in its dexterity, both frozen and nightmare. Opening its transparent cave after shift, I try to make my mind the opposite of winter. I climb into the bear's outstretched arms underneath the teeth and I say, you're the baby. The restaurant is clean and no one else is here. The midnight sun taps absently against the windows. Shh, the bear says. I'm about to be ferocious.
Winter Solstice. The night stops adding to its enemies list and turns the blind corner towards forgiveness. And so each year we throw a party to remind the night emotions are more real to us than dreams. Dreams are like children who think they know what love is. Love is a light too bright to be one of these stars, and night has decided it can't keep us apart. We are doomed. Birch trees. Our hands are agents of our eyes. No one says, baby, put your clothes on for me. All the times you've been told not to touch. They remind us of tines. They remind us of stilts. What we love about paper is the way that it waits. I have one spoken word poem, like a like all out. Well, not all out. I shouldn't have said anything. Um, <laughs> but it's like you know, those aging rock bands have to play that one hit. <laughs> I said I wasn't gonna do it. I told my wife that. You're making me a liar. You're making me a liar. This never happened. This poem is called Work. Remember, I used to live in New York City. Remember, work. I climb out of the refrigerator before dawn and wipe the condensation from my spine. It feels good to smell this fresh. So I can speak softly on a variety of topics. I lick the newspaper and do a shot of sawdust. I take a saffron cliché from the closet, hand-stitched by children of the very rich, and tie it around my thigh. I get to my cubicle late. A young couple is waiting. They show me a jar of marbles. I tell them, really what you have here is a jar of marbles, and then pull the bill from my ear. I'm good. Boss gives me a 7 out of 10. My coworkers paint themselves. When the lunch whistle blows, I slouch in my chair and unbutton my pants. I chew on old photographs. They're beautiful and delicious. After lunch, I put tape on my face. All afternoon, I make animals out of foil from gum wrappers. I juggle sandpaper. When it's almost time to go, boss comes by, ties a bell around my neck, and kisses me on the Adam's apple. Eventually, I stop ringing and hop down to the company bar. I drink pina coladas and condescend with other workers. My wallet does most of the talking. It says, yeehaw, and rides around my back pocket. Afterwards, I'm loose shelves and compartments. I rattle as I bring home suitcases full of bacon. I sit on the floor of my apartment and read the VCR manual until it's time to go to bed. I unzip my smile. I'm exhausted and sleep like Iceland. I dream about working in a Reykjavik fire hydrant. I touch my tongue to frozen metal.
Thank you. Uh, a couple more. Um, this is called Rescue Excerpts, and it's in ten short little parts. One. The rescue party was too enthusiastic, as evidenced by antiquated rescue tools, a heavy grappling hook, snowshoes, group whistling as a way to establish that everything was going according to plan. Perhaps it's just adrenaline, I thought, but it didn't wear off. Two. The two regular opening and closing of one faded, very large, and closely guarded map. When the map was open, we held our hands to it for warmth. When the map was folded, rectangle upon thickening rectangle, it was a cellar door. And which side of the door were we looking at? Three. Don't come after us, she said. What in God's name are you talking about? Four. <laughs> Everyone knows that permafrost is permanently frozen ground. They say that if you were lost at sea, birds are a sign of land, but we were not lost at sea, and I did not even see a single cloud that looked like a bird. <laughs> Seven. Every one of us wanted one of us to be critically injured or killed, a bloodletting to cure. Until that happened, this was not serious. We were not serious. Eight. We found them alive. We found them barely alive. We found them alive and well. We found them exhausted and frightened, but alive. We never found them. They found us. We found each other. We finally found each other. Nine, the sun does stranger things. Ten, <laughs> there are moments in every drawn-out rescue where the rescuers blame the lost and the lost blame the rescuers. At these times, the line between the two groups muddles. The lost want nothing more than the capacity, resources, and sense of purpose that searching brings. Often, the lost ransack their clothing and dwindling foodstuffs, looking for any clue to the rescuers' whereabouts. The rescuers insist that it is they themselves who are nowhere to be found. I don't get to read those very much. I'll read the other one. I'll read the other one. Last one. Oh, um, there are books for sale, and if you buy them, I get to eat. <laughs> I prefer the subtle sales pitch. <laughs> I got more under the table. Oh, no, no, yeah, yeah, the, the, other, the other ones. I like to eat a lot. Rescue excerpts also in 10 sections. Different scenario. One, it was important to all of us to find just the right implement with which to write messages in the sand. We decided to rip a long plank off a crate that was washed up onto the beach. Some of us thought the crate was from a cruise ship, the optimists. 
Others thought the crate was from a pirate ship, the pessimists. Obviously, we sharpened the plank so that it had a writing end and a non-writing end. We dubbed it the ugly stick, which we hoped would prevent covening. <laughs> Two, the crate was empty, and from that seemingly innocuous fact, two philosophies were born. Three, the days are warm and pleasant and the nights are warm and pleasant. On the very first night, we gathered driftwood for a fire that we never needed. We built the fire because we were bored. Four, we eat a lot of wild rice. Wild rice is actually a grass. We sleep a lot. We sleep a lot because we are scared, bored, and lonely. We rarely sleep because we are sleepy from eating too much of the rice. Nevertheless, we often refer to sleeping as dieting. <laughs> Five, salt water is good for the skin. 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 <laughs> Six, pessimist. Do you think the eye patches in rum are on the bottom of the ocean? Optimist. Do you think the ship's activities coordinator is resourceful enough to make do without? Etc. Seven. You have seen so many narratives depicting the stranded on a desert island predicament that it is nearly impossible to control yourself. Though I loathe easy dichotomy, it is basically true that all our behaviors fall into one of two categories. There are the people who try to resist behaving like someone they've read about, seen on television, or in a movie, and there are the people who embrace these roles. Eight. Someone wrote, Piggy loves the professor must die. They wrote this perpendicular to the shoreline so the incoming tide erased the message one letter at a time. Nine. When you lose the ability to distinguish between sunburn and rash, you are in real trouble. <laughs> you are delusional, and those delusions stem from an insatiable loneliness. Ten. There are no cameras in the trees. Light swims through the thin canopy easily. There are plenty of birds to eat. They are without guile, simple to kill and prepare. There are no cameras in the trees. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that, that is Jeffrey Morgan. Keep it going, please. Something about Robert you might not know. He loved books. Hard. Gonorrhea. Get it while you can't. Get the bundle of syphilis. Poetry. Not syphilis.